Well, good morning. If you will, take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, today we're going to talk about sanctification that we've been talking about uh, every time I've been able to be with you. And today we're going to talk about perseverance. So if you will, 2 Peter chapter 1. While you're turning there, I just want to encourage you to remember some folks. First of all, Alan and Linda Arms. Remember them in prayer in the passing of their son-in-law, Joel, this past week. So please remember Alan and Linda. Also, if you'd remember Sean McGill, our children's director, her mother went to heaven this past week. And so be sure and be praying. And if you see those folks, love them, pray for them, give them a hug, remember them. 2 Peter chapter 1. So the first four verses, every time we've read through this, it's about our justification, coming to Christ. And then it takes a switch starting in verse 5, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning, talking about our sanctification. Our sanctification is different from our justification. And if you get those two kind of backwards, you can get messed up because justification is God alone working in our hearts, bringing us to Christ, awaking our our dead hearts so that we trust Christ. That's what happened to these two young ladies. Their testimony this morning was they were, even as young girls, dead to God. But he awakened their hearts in hearing the good news, the gospel, and made them realize their incredible need. It was a God thing. But then, whenever a person comes to Christ, now we're in this process, and it is a process. It is a process of sanctification. That is, until the day Jesus comes or the day we die, we're in this process of becoming more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. You and I, not only the Spirit of God, but you and I, have a responsibility in that sanctification. It's very clear here in this passage. So I hope you hear it over and over again that God is totally and absolutely sovereign and you and I are totally and absolutely responsible in this particular area in our life of our growth in Christ. So if you will, starting in verse 5, listen to it once again as we get to what we're going to camp on this morning. For this very reason, and that is the reason of our justification, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, or another way to put it, your moral excellence. That means for a believer in this ungodly, immoral world, you and I must, with the Spirit's help, that is, we must do everything we can to stay morally pure. Ephesians says it like this, let there not even be a hint of immorality in your life. And so you and I are to pursue moral excellency. Not only that, but knowledge, knowledge of God's word, the purpose of God honoring, living and worshiping him and serving him. And you know that you are growing in the right type of knowledge of God's word when it is humbling you. But when you are becoming prideful in your knowledge, that is the wrong kind. And so you and I are to grow in the knowledge of God's Word. There's never come a time in you and I's life, in this life, 
that will go, listen, we know everything we need to know about God's word and about God. No, you and I must continually be growing in knowing his word. In other words, anytime you hear someone teach or preach, you go like, I've heard that before. I know that. Well, just listen again, like maybe you never heard it before. And maybe the Spirit of God would speak to your heart and realize, oh, I, I don't know it all yet. I, I have to constantly do that. I can be guilty of like, oh, I've heard that passage before. Or I've read that passage before. But yet God's Word, on and on and on, you and I must grow in it. So not only virtue, we are to grow in knowledge, but then the last time we were together, to that knowledge, we are to grow in self-control because growth and drift happen little by little. Your growth in Christ or your drift in your Christian walk happens little by little, and you and I must have self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the what? Spirit, yes. And so you and I must continually grow in our self-control. But then it says that to our self-control, we are to add to it steadfastness, some of your translations may say, or perseverance. And that's where we're going to camp on today. And a perseverance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and to brotherly affection, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... In other words, again, it is a lifelong process of you and I continually growing, continually increasing in godliness and Christlikeness. They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." And so I just want to kind of answer three questions. And here's the first one. Why do you and I need perseverance? Why do you and I in this life need perseverance? If you would, take a left to go to 1 Peter. Because the church to whom Peter wrote these two letters would know why they needed to persevere. First and second, Peter, were written to Christians who were going through incredible trials. You and I, living here in Oklahoma, have no clue what these people were going through. They were losing their lives for Christ. They were being burnt at the stake. Their loved ones were being killed in front of them so that they were trying to get people to recant their faith and weaken the faith of other believers. So these people are going through fiery trials, literally. If you would, look at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, and we'll get to what he's talking about rejoicing in a moment. But here's what I want you to hear. Though for now, a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as you who were called you holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if, and if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, Peter is just saying, listen, in this world, you are going to go through incredible trials and suffering. These people know it. And in the midst of that, you are to live a holy life. You are to honor God in all situations. This is why you need perseverance. If you would, look at chapter 2, same book, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, if you would. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Hardship, I'm not, this is not a passage, okay? Hardship is never a license to ease up on self-control and indulge in unholy living. Yet it's a temptation. It's a temptation when life gets hard to think like, oh, I just need a little bit of relief. And so maybe I could indulge in this. And Peter's addressing them saying, listen, life's hard. But this does not give you an entitlement or a license to live unholy in this world. In fact, years and years ago, some of you that are older might remember the name of a pastor, Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart was world known. He preached all over the world. And yet it came out that not just one time, but several times, he was caught with someone other than his wife, to put it mildly. And he was asked over and over again, how could this be? And finally he just came out and said, He felt entitled because of all the good work he was doing for the Lord for just a little bit of. So I just say it once again. Hardship, suffering, difficulties in this life is never a license to let up on self-control or indulge in unholy living. Chapter 5, the same 1 Peter Here's another reason why this church realized why they should persevere. Chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you would, on your worship guide, look to the left, if you would. There's a quote by John MacArthur, and it says this, Perseverance in the Christian life is a ceaseless warfare against the forces of the kingdom of darkness. Christians, therefore, need to be reminded to expect hardships and persecutions and not be dismayed by them. Jesus promised that in this world you will have tribulation. John 16, 
33. Not only Jesus said that, but again, we've heard that from Peter. You read the letters of Paul. You read the letter of James. You hear it over and over again to expect it. One of the things that why you and I trust God's word is it's realistic. I mean, think about it. It does not cover over hardship, does it? The prosperity gospel would say, you live accordingly and you'll never have any of that trouble. But Scripture is realistic, right? It says you and I will suffer in this life. This life is difficult at times. And so do not be surprised when it happens. God is so real. He is like not trying to cover it up for you and I. You read his word, you realize there are going to be difficult things ahead. The trouble is, is when you and I believe, hey, listen, if I live this certain way, then I will never have any kind of problems. And then when problems come, you start doubting God. But yet you have to realize what God said. He never flossed it over, never glossed it over, flossed it over, (laughs) flossed it over, no, glossed it over. That in this life, you will have difficulties. We need perseverance. Because our sanctification is a lifelong process. Lifelong. If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, who you would and I would consider probably one of the greatest Christians who ever lived wanted you and I to realize something, it is a lifelong process. You and I will never come to a point in this life of saying, oh, I'm done in my sanctification. I'm done in persevering. No, it's a continual. If you would, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12 through 14. I don't know if the Apostle Paul, when he was younger, was an athlete, or if he was maybe like some of us, we just like sports. We like to watch somebody else do them. But so he used it often when he wrote. And in this particular one, I kind of understand it because I ran track. And so this particular passage really makes sense to me because listen to it. It says, starting verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I persevere is what he is saying. I press on. To make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own brothers. I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. Now really listen to this. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to that which lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So once again, listen to these words. It says this. Forgetting what lies behind. In track, my coach said, never look back. Every time you look back, you take time off. Because you're unfocused. It doesn't matter if someone's on your heels. Don't be looking back. It's almost like you're racing against yourself. Don't worry about the other competitors, is what he said. And I found it true. I looked back a few times, tripped, fumbled, stumbled, 
lost the race. So Paul is saying, I forget, I don't turn back and look, but what do I do? I press on, I strain forward, and you give it all you've got until you cross the line. Paul is saying it's a lifelong process that you and I must persevere. So secondly, what's the motivation behind you and I continually persevering in this life? Well, that it would be because Jesus is preserving us. See, I persevere, you persevere, because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are being preserved moment by moment by Jesus. If you would, turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6 to begin with. In fact, if you are here this morning, and if you have doubts about your salvation, I can tell you from personal experience, you will have a difficult time persevering or having courage or wanting to press on because you doubt. And yet, I want you to know, I want you to know, God wants you to know you don't have to doubt. You can have assurance. You can have assurance. In fact, if you have John 6, keep your finger there. Look over if you would. There's a quote from the Westminster Confession. It says this, They whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called, sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Where do where they get to be able to put a statement like that? They get it from these passages, John chapter 6, if you would, starting in verse 37. In fact, if you're here this morning and again you have doubts of your salvation or if you are honestly, if you're even a believer, these are for you. You do not have to leave here today in doubt. I'm telling you, a doubting Christian is more miserable than a person who knows they're lost. Because you're doubting God. And yet, John 6, starting in verse 37, says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. If you would, continue to go to chapter 10, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, look if you would, starting in verse 28. <clears throat> John 10 Starting in verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. When I was 21 years old, I trusted Christ. He awoke in my dead heart. I believed. My prayer was, God, I want you to be the boss of my life. The next day, I was flooded with doubt. I was miserable. In fact, it was the most wonderful time. And then the very next day, it was the most miserable time of my life until a man began to disciple me. And he just began to ask me things, and this is one of the things that I really struggled with as a new believer. He took me to these verses. These probably are some of the most precious to me personally, that I give them eternal life. They will never perish. I thought I didn't say the right words. I thought I wasn't sincere enough. Uh, I wasn't at the church, and I didn't come down to the altar or the steps. In fact, I was in a cabin in the mountains at midnight on a Friday night. Like, who can get saved there? And I had all these things about, like, this is what it means. But no. When he awoke in my dead heart, gave me faith to trust him, he saved me, and he reminds me over and over again, do you know... Kind of like Rich was saying a moment ago, and I don't like calling Christianity a religion, but there is no other religion in the world other than Christianity that gives assurance. Every other wants to keep you afraid. God loves you and I so much that he wants you to be assured. And that's why he says once again, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God is absolutely sovereign. But in our perseverance, you and I are absolutely responsible to continue in that. So how do you develop perseverance? That's what I want to kind of camp on for a moment. In fact, in your notes, there's only, I think, one line that has some fill in, and here it is. Perseverance is a combination. In fact, if you were to try to translate perseverance, it's kind of difficult, and so it kind of has a few parts to it, and so if you would, just fill this in. Perseverance is a combination of patience and endurance fueled by hope. Just once again, perseverance is a combination of patience and endurance fueled by hope. So let's camp for a minute. Patience. Patience can be defined as the ability to accept delay or trouble calmly, especially when it comes to people. Because when you hear this word patience and endurance, you're like, well, aren't they the same? Well, a kind of, but when you talk about patience, we're talking about patience with people. When we come to endurance, it's about circumstances. So being patient with people and then having endurance when it comes to 
certain circumstances. So first of all, patience. How in the world do you and I grow in patience? Why should we be patient and all that? Well, here began with, if you would, turn to Romans chapter 2, and we'll start like this. God is patient with us. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and the truth is God is more patient than all of us put together. God is patient with you and I. Why should you and I persevere in growing in patience? Because God is patient with you and I. He's patient with every person in this room. Can you imagine if God was like you when it came to patience? How long would you be alive? It would be red and Jimmy was no more. I mean, that would be my life story. But God is patient with you and I. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume... It literally means to think lightly or look down on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Did you hear all that? The riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience. Listen to 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, saying, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He has perfect patience. But you're still in the book of Romans, if you would, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. You and I are to be patient and grow in it because God's patient with us, but we are to be imitators of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God. And you're like, how could anyone do that? Well, the very next says, as beloved children. As beloved children, His Holy Spirit lives within you and I. And you and I, He is enabled to be able to imitate. Verse 2, And we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you would, turn to Colossians chapter 3. and We'll camp there for just a little bit so your fingers can get a rest there. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so I just want to kind of say this like this. Self-control and patience go hand in hand. And so I have been guilty of saying I'm an impatient person. I've been guilty of saying that. But what I ought to go ahead and say is I'm also guilty of having no self-control. Because self-control and patience with people go hand in hand. 
So here's a statement. Maybe you've heard this before, but it has made a world of difference to me. Seek to understand before being understood. When it comes to people and you begin to be impatient, seek to understand before trying to be understood. I'll give you a little story. Gentleman's on a subway in New York City and He's trying to get home from work. Subways are crowded, noisy, and crazy, and so he's just found him a little corner in the subway car, all kind of all by himself, and it stops. The door opens. In comes a man, and obviously it's his two little children. He sits down and seems quite unaware of what's going on, and his two little children are just going crazy. So the gentleman trying to get home is just kind of like, I can't believe what's going on. Here's a, obviously the father. He's just uh, oblivious to his children, unruly, and it goes on and on. And finally, his patience gives way. And he says to the man, could you control your children? And he says, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We just came from the hospital and their mother just died. So an instant perspective because when he understood he gave him the ability to be patient so when it comes to patience attempt seek to understand before you being understood I need my quiet so patience with endurance. Endurance can be defined as experiencing and surviving hardship, especially when it comes to circumstances. If you would, Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Colossians 1, 9. Paul is saying, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened in all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. On and on as you read through Scripture, you realize something about endurance. It only comes through the process of struggle. It never comes instantly. Endurance means that you and I must go through struggle to grow in it. I just want to tell you a little story about me. In my, I haven't arrived, but I'm still growing in endurance. Because, just listen if you would, Colossians back, to, we read it a moment ago, but Colossians chapter 3, there's a particular characteristic in it that I needed a lesson in and continue to. But it says this in chapter Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I needed a lesson in meekness, and so here's kind of how it went. So when Cher and I were married, we were attending a church there in Edmond, and uh, we were picking up a man from a nursing home three times a week, bringing him to church, and Sherry was uh, pregnant with our first child, and we had a, we had a green car, and it was uh, kind of a nasty green, and if you like green, I'm sorry I offended you, but anyway, it was a nasty green, and, and it had bald tires, and it, the air conditioner didn't work, and it ran when it wanted to, kind of a, a deal, and um, so I was constantly frustrated and mostly angry at God, not necessarily the car. Do you know why? I thought I was entitled. I thought I had the right to have a car that worked because I'm doing all this work for the Lord. Plus, I'm taking care of my family and I'm picking up a man who is in a wheelchair and he can't get to church by himself and I'm loading him up in this car that breaks down a lot. And so I'm mad. And you know, that, that's not a good characteristic of a believer, right? James says, anger does not promote the righteousness of God. And so I had heard, because I'd been uh, to church on a Sunday night, where I'd heard about what causes anger. What causes anger in this particular deal was because you think you have a right to something. So I realized I thought I had a right or entitled. And I can remember Sherry was, I think, taking care of her child in nursery and church was over. And I went out in a dark parking lot on a Sunday night to the car. And I realized something. This was God's car. It's green, ugly, and it's broken down. But it's God's car, not mine. I felt entitled. And so... With no one around, I put my hand on the car and I said, God, I recognize this is your car. It's broken down, but it's it's your car. I've been thinking I've had a right to, I've been feeling entitled to, and I give it up. Just give it up. Give it up. Uh, Lights didn't flash and lightning and all that didn't happen, but I sensed a a contentment. And you know what contentment is, right? Contentment is you're trusting that God has provided everything you need for this present moment. And you know, contentment with godliness is a great gain. And I had contentment. And I realized for the next several days, I wasn't angry, even though I walked a lot because the car broke down and I had to walk to go get help to get the car going, kind of a deal. But I felt content in the midst of continual circumstances hadn't changed. So let me hurry the story up. So the very next Saturday, someone knocks at the door. We're not expecting anyone. There's a guy at the door, and he says, Hey, sorry to bother you, but uh, this week I really sensed the Lord wanted me to give you my car, and so here's the title. I've already signed it over, and so... Here's the keys, and his wife was waiting in a, their other car, and they drove off, and that was it. I mean, it was, that was it. 
this is yours, bye. Went out there. He had put new tires on it. It had air conditioner worked on. It was absolutely wonderful. Nobody knew about this. Nobody knew about this. I went on my first mission trip. When I got home, uh, Sherry and our daughter met me, and we were walking out. I was looking for that car, and the car wasn't there. So while we were gone, that car had broken down, and someone had come by and gave us a van. And so we drove home in a, in a van that night. I remember one Wednesday night, one of our girls were sick, and so Sherry and the girls were at home. And when I got home, there's a pickup in the, my driveway. And so I, I go in thinking that someone's come to visit. There's no one here. And Sherry said, well, while you're at church, this guy came by and gave you his pickup. We were, one day I, I was driving one of those cars, and so I always called them WWJD. What would Jesus drive? Because some of them weren't that awesome, but they ran. So I drove to church here. And as I pulled in the parking lot around on the north side, it sounded like there was gravel in the transmission. And I pulled over here because we officed back here at the time, and it died in the parking lot right there. And I remember getting out, and I went to my office, and I sat down, and I said, God, your car, you remember, they're God's cars, right? Your car is broke down. I remember like, what are we going to do? About 10.30, the phone rings. A guy literally says, do you need a car? Well, it just so happens. I remember that night, I drove home in a different car and at the table, now we have three little girls, and at the table before we eat, we pray. And I said, God, thank you for your provision in the new car today. And before I could say amen, I heard three little feet running out the door <laughs> to go see what was out there. I'll, I'll stop with the stories. So I'll stop with car number 17. My last story with car 17. We lost count. We were invited to a, a young couple's house for dinner. We had dinner, got to know them. It was a wonderful night. As we were leaving, the man of the house said, Hey, by the way, we want to give you our car. In my mind, I'm thinking, I don't need one. In fact, I have some surplus right now. <laughs> but hear me, and you've heard this before, but it is all true. I did not want to rob him. I didn't want to say like, hey, I don't need that. You must have been mistaken. Give it to somebody else. I drove it home wondering why would God give me a car when I don't need it? The next day, I heard of a man who needed a car. So I had to decide which one I would give him. That story is not to say God's Santa Claus, the butler, or a genie at all. I needed to learn a lesson. 
about being meek. And meekness means, God, you own it all. I have no rights. Now, living in America, that kind of rubs some people wrong. But as a child of God, I have no right. I have no entitlement like, hey, I'm a follower of Christ. I deserve that. No, I'm a child of God. And whatever he chooses to allow me to go through, I need to go through it with humility and meekness and grow in that. So meekness is helping me to learn how to endure so quickly. It's not only patience and endurance, but it is fueled by hope. And you and I know hope is the assurance backed up by God of something not yet experienced. You and I as believers have a hope that nobody else in this world has. We have a hope that there is more to this life than this life. The life that is awaiting you and I is far beyond what you and I can comprehend We've never thought of such a thing, heard or seen of such a thing that is awaiting us. And that's why over and over, except for two New Testament letters, every other letter in the New Testament talks about the hope that we have of the coming of Christ and what he has prepared for you and I and what is awaiting you and I. You and I have a hope that nobody else has. It's not a, I hope so. Our hope as a Christian is an assurance. It is a sure thing. In fact, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 1. And this, I promise, is where I'll stop. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles... In other words, you and I need to constantly remember that in this world we're pilgrims or sojourners or if you would want to even say exiles. This world is not our home. This is we're passing through this life. We are to make an imprint on this life for Christ's sake. But this is not all there is. The two funerals that I spoke of a moment ago that happened this week. There is sorrow, but what's weird or a non-believer can't imagine is that at a funeral, there could be joy as well as grief in the passing of a believer because we know that that believer is somewhere that has been prepared for him, God has promised. We're exiles. Verse 3, if you would, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. Now think about it. Peter is writing to people who are dying or they have just seen their family members burnt at the stake. And so how does he encourage them? He says, hear me. 
There is an inheritance that is waiting that is imperishable. Everything in this life that you have, it has perished. For some of these people, everything has perished and they are about to die themselves. But he's saying that what is awaiting you is imperishable. It is what? Undefiled. In other words, evil cannot touch it. It is unfading by the passing of time or untouched by death. It's unfading. It is kept in heaven for you. In other words, it is guaranteed by the power of God that it is being kept for you. Verse 5, whom by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. That the hope that you and I have beyond this life is far beyond what you and I could ever imagine. In this rejoice, even though for a little while compared to heaven, that's eternal. For a little while, life's going to be hard. So what do you and I do? We have to have hope. One last Quote, if you look over there, Chuck Swindoll years ago said this quote, I've hung on to it, except the mystery of hardship and suffering. You have, you've experienced this, I have too. In the midst of grief and hardship, a lot of times we focus or we try to figure out the unre- unrevealed. We're always asking, why did this happen? What's the purpose of this? And yet there are no answers to it. None. Yet God has given us everything. He has revealed everything you and I need in his word. So in the midst of grief, you try to figure out all the things that are not revealed by God. And you get frustrated, and then you get mad at God. I'm just telling my story. You get mad at God, like, why won't you answer that question? Well, he didn't, and he might not in this life. But what he has done is he's given everything that I need. We've read that over and over in First and Second Peter. He has given us everything we need for godliness in this life. And so in the midst of mystery and unrevealed, why is this happening? Why did this happen? What if? And all those questions that you'll never have an answer to. You need to go back to what he has revealed. Concentrate on that. As you grow and as I grow in perseverance. Because perseverance is what? It's patience and endurance fueled by hope. Would you pray with me? Again, there might be someone here this morning. You might be listening to this. In fact, you might be listening to this, and it's been a long time. It's just, this is a recording, maybe. And yet, you've heard this, and you have no assurance. In fact, when... When we talk about hope, you're just hoping so, but you don't have assurance. You can. You can. Oh, my goodness. You can. In fact, 
If you have never trusted Christ at this moment, if He's awakening your heart, you have within you, I want to believe that. Call on His name. Ask Him for forgiveness that He offered when He died on the cross. Inviting to take up residence in your life. Ask Him like I did to be the boss. That means the Lord of your life. Right where you're at. If you have doubts and unassurance, trust His Word. If you're His, you're in His hand. Nothing, no one no circumstance can snatch you from his hand. Trust him. If you're going through hard times, which probably 99.9 of all of us, persevere. Add to your faith. Perseverance. Grow in patience. Grow in endurance. Have hope. Father, thank you. We, it will take all of eternity to thank you for what you've done, what you've given. You resided your children's hearts. You give us your word that has precious promises. You have given us everything we need in this life, within this book. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your people. Thank you. I pray no one walks out of this room without hope, without assurance, without courage that comes from knowing you. God, hear our, hear our praise and our prayer back to you these moments because again I can't thank you enough I ask this in your precious name